how do you determine whether a ministry is successful or not? How do you know if a church is doing what God wants it to do? You know, most look at numbers when making an initial evaluation. If a church is growing, it's assumed that it's doing things right. If it's not growing, the assumption is that there is a problem, and there may be. But numbers alone don't tell the whole story. And to judge a church a success or failure on the basis of numbers may be a mistake. You know, my first Sunday as the preacher of Chatham Christian Church was July 1st, 1973. 45 years ago today. Attendance that Sunday was 140. By my second Sunday, it had dropped to 103. <laughs> Over the years, our attendance has risen and fallen many times. For five years, in the 80s, we were over 200, and in the late 90s, we were in the 180s. So far this year, our high has been 151 and our low, 91. And our average the past several years is about what it was when I came here 45 years ago. What does that mean? I really don't know. You know, a lot of factors can drive numbers up or down in a church. A new building, a change in musical style, a growing church in the area, an unpopular moral stance, personality conflicts, a shift in congregational priorities, a change in the political climate or societal expectations. There are both good and bad reasons for fluctuating numbers in a church. So how is a church to know whether or not it's succeeding in God's eyes? Well, when Paul left Timothy in Ephesus, there were problems in the church. And Paul was hopeful that Timothy could turn things around, but how was he to do it? Paul outlined what Timothy was to prescribe and teach to the church, and his letters to Timothy are filled with relevant instructions for the church. But what else was Timothy to do to make sure his ministry in Ephesus was successful. Well, as we read on, we discover that Paul gave Timothy some personal instructions that if followed by him and by the church would lead to a successful ministry. They weren't church growth techniques or marketing strategies, but they would ensure salvation both for Timothy and his hearers. And that obviously is the best test of success in ministry. So let's see what Paul said to Timothy. And the first thing Timothy was to do was to establish a modeled ministry. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, 
Show yourself an example of those who believe. We've all heard the statement, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one. And in effect, that is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Make sure you set an example for your people. Paul even wrote of himself in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And that is the first component of a successful ministry, something we today call modeling. You know, it's absolutely essential that those who would lead in ministry lead by example, for the credibility of our message is judged by the life we live. How many times have you heard someone say their faith had been shattered by a faithless minister or by hypocritical leaders in a church? Now, while it is wrong to base our faith on fallible men, we should be able to look to leaders of a church for direction and for an example to follow. And let's not assume that only the ministers and elders are leaders in a congregation either. If you teach a Sunday school class, you're a leader. And whether you want to or not, you model for your class. If you are a youth sponsor, you set the example for the kids to follow by everything you do. If you help in the nursery, serve as an usher, or just greet someone on Sunday morning, you are showing yourself an example of those who believe. And it's essential that you be a good example, no matter who you are and what your circumstances may be. In fact, Timothy faced a special challenge when it came to set an example for others to follow because of his age. He was considered a youth, which meant he was under 40. The term Paul used referred to anyone of military age, which was under 40. But he was considered a youth. And being considered youth was a definite disadvantage to him because many of those he sought to lead were men of age and experience. Some were no doubt elders in the church who had even studied under the Apostle Paul. What he was being asked to do would be difficult. But Paul told him not to let anyone look down on his youthfulness. Instead, they should look up to him because of the example. He said, an example in both speech and conduct, an example characterized by love, faith, and purity. In his speech, he was to express love by saying things that demonstrated the high regard he had for the people in the church and his desire to seek only their best interests. He was to verbalize his faith willingly telling what Christ meant to him. And he was to be faithful, honest, and dependable in what he said. He was to be pure of speech. What he said was to reflect the purity of his Lord. He was to think twice before passing on stories or making remarks that could soil the pure name of Jesus. And his conduct, his lifestyle, was also to reflect love faith, and purity. He was to do that which was good for others to practice agape love. 
He was to demonstrate his faith in God by the way he responded to the crises in his life and his faithfulness to others by following through on his word. He was to live in such a way that no one could question his commitment to Christian standards of morality. In short, he was to model his faith. He was to demonstrate it and by doing so set an example for others to follow. And then he was to make certain that he established a Bible-centered ministry. Verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. The heart of Timothy's ministry was to be the revealed word of God. It wasn't to be his programs and ideas or even his inspirational sermons. He was to get them into the word. And the word of God must be the focus of our attention as well. You know, we gather in this building to worship and to learn how to be what God wants us to be. We are not here to be entertained or emotionally refreshed. We're here to learn from God's Word. And to do that, we, like Timothy, must give attention to the reading, exhortation, and teaching of Scripture. We must read God's Word publicly so all can hear directly what God has to say. And reading must be followed by exhortation and teaching. Teaching clarifies and explains what is meant, and exhortation applies it to our lives. We must not be hearers only, but doers of the word. No matter how successful a congregation might appear to be in the eyes of the world, it's a failure in God's eyes if his word is not being read, exhorted, and taught. Over the years, we've stated our purpose as a congregation in a variety of ways. We used to have a welcome brochure that read, Our purpose is to be changed into his likeness and to invite others to do so with us. In order to become like him, we must know him. His character, priorities, mission, and teachings are revealed to us in his word. The study of Scripture is therefore very important to us, and it is prominent in our worship, services, classes, youth programs, and study groups. After we put in our stained glass windows, we made a new brochure that pictured our windows and said, where the story of salvation is heard from God's Word, is remembered in communion, is seen in stained glass, is shared in missions, is offered to everyone, is experienced in worship, is anticipated in living. Our website now simply states where God's Word is taught and lived. The words have changed over the years, but the focus has not. If we are to succeed as a church we must give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And we must have a spirit-directed ministry. 
verse 14. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. What Timothy's spiritual gift was, we're not told. But we were told it was bestowed upon him through prophetic utterance and with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. And we do know that spiritual gifts were given through the hands of the apostles to help in the establishment and instruction of the early church. Now, the need for those gifts disappeared after the completion of the New Testament, but was still needed in Timothy's lifetime. And this is apparently a reference to such a gift given to him, a gift that equipped him for his ministry. Now, while spiritual gifts are not given in that way today, Ephesians 4 does make it clear that each of us is given a special grace or gift when we become a part of the body of Christ. And Romans 12 makes it clear that those gifts, gifts such as preaching, serving, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading, and showing mercy are to be used within the context of the body. Every member is to utilize the gift or gifts God has given them, not for personal aggrandizement, but for the benefit of the entire body. That means every one of us who has the Spirit of God within us has a spiritual gift that is to be used in ministry. And if we are to succeed in ministry, we must rely on the Spirit of God. Timothy wasn't to attempt things on his own. He was to let the Spirit of God work through him, directing and empowering him to do God's will. Now, how he was to do that, we're not told. But we do know that God speaks in many ways to those who are willing to listen. He speaks through his word. He speaks through open doors, through situations, through circumstances, and through other Christians. We also know that on behalf of the church, he speaks through the consensus of the elders. The thing for us to remember here is simply that if we would have a successful ministry, it must be spirit-empowered and spirit-directed. All of us must be using the gifts God has given us. Every part of the body must be functioning as God has equipped it to function. And then together, we must be allowing God to do whatever he wants to do with Chatham Christian Church, regardless of what he is doing with other churches. Next, we discover that a successful ministry is to be a progressing ministry. Verse 15, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress may be evident to all. Now, the last time I preached this, I entitled this point, a progressive ministry. Now, that word has obviously been hijacked by a particular political persuasion, but the goal of progress is still important in ministry. 
When Paul told Timothy to be an example to those in Ephesus, he wasn't suggesting that Timothy had arrived, that he had become the perfect minister and the perfect example of what everyone the church should be. Yes, he had been equipped by sitting at the apostles' feet and studying God's word, and he had been gifted by the Holy Spirit for ministry, but he was expected to continue growing spiritually and professionally. He was to take pains with those things Paul told him to do. He was to work hard as a minister, striving to be the best he could be and striving to set an example in all that he said and did. As a minister, he had to love everyone in the church, and sometimes that's hard. He had to remain positive and have faith that God was at work in the church. He had to remain morally pure when fighting sin in his own life as well as everyone else's. Timothy would have to work hard, take pains to do a good job. And he would have to be absorbed in the Word of God. He would have to study it, meditate upon it, pray for insight as to what it means and how to apply it and how to motivate people to follow it. He would also have to be immersed in the Spirit. He would have to rely on the Spirit within him to remain sensitive to the leading of the Spirit's leading in all things. He would do those things. He would be constantly changing, and his progress would be evident to all. And as he changed and progressed, so would the church. Indeed, a successful ministry will be progressing, changing, improving in effectiveness as the leaders and members change and make spiritual progress. If we never change, something's wrong. Our relationship with Christ is dynamic, and we are to be ever-changing into His likeness. And if our church never changes, something is wrong. Now, I do have to admit that I generally don't like change. Marilyn learned long ago if she wanted to change the look of a room, it was easier to move the furniture herself than try to convince me that things should be moved. And I'm probably getting worse. I never get car fever anymore. I'm delighted that my Harley has 130,000 miles on it. And once I've found a fishing lure that works, I have no desire to try anything else. I don't believe in change for change's sake. Nor do I believe that change is the same as progress. If something is working, there may be no need to change it. However, if it can be done better, maybe there is. I think as a church, we are doing a lot of things right. But if there are things that need to be improved or changed, let's change them. Now, admittedly, I may be hard to convince, but don't give up. 
If there are things that we're not doing that we should be doing, point them out and then help us do them. Recently, it was brought to our attention that we don't have a group that is simply dedicated to prayer. So one is now in the initial stages of being formed. We don't want to be a stagnant ministry. We want to be a ministry that is characterized by people from the preacher on down who are changing, progressing, growing in faith, and becoming more like Christ every day. A church that is willing to evaluate its ministry and find even better ways to be and do what God has called us to be and do. A successful ministry is one that is progressing. And it's a persevering ministry. Verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to give up, to quit trying, or to settle for less than we should. If we become content with our spiritual development, we'll stop improving. And if we're always looking back to past successes and not working for new ones, we'll stop having them. We must persevere to succeed. Paul told Timothy to pay close attention to himself and to his teaching. It was imperative that Timothy examine himself regularly to see if he was progressing or not. And it was vital that he made sure he was teaching what needed to be taught, not just what people wanted to hear. In Paul's day... Some only wanted to hear things they hadn't heard before, things that were new. Others wanted to have their ears tickled. They wanted to hear things that pleased them, that made them feel good. In our day, we're told the postmodern mind is more interested in experience than absolutes. But God has spoken, and we must persevere in declaring the whole counsel of God. Our goal is not necessarily a large audience. Our goal is the salvation of ourselves and those who hear us. The way we do that is through teaching and preaching God's Word, all of it. And the best way I know to make sure I preach all of it is to preach straight through Bible books. Trusting that if God said it, we need to hear it and understand it and practice it. If we'll do that faithfully, I believe we'll be successful in leading men and women to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But we've all got to pay close attention to it. And we've got to examine ourselves regularly to make sure we are putting it into practice, all of it. Only then can we be assured of a successful ministry.
I want to close by sharing something I just read Friday morning. The March-April edition of Touchstone had been lying on the couch next to me for well over a month. I'm not sure why, but it's been unusually hard for me to stay awake while reading anything but the Bible lately. But after my daily reading on Friday, I decided that rather than take a look at the iPad to see what was going on in the world, I would try to catch up with Touchstone. I started by reading the next unread article, a rather lengthy feature article, entitled, Reason Takes Up Arms, How Best to Face the Total War of the Anti-Culture. Now, it was an excellent, thought-provoking article, and I was going to stop there. But then something, or someone, pushed me on to the next one. Millennial mission. The transmission of Christianity is not a new task. Early in the article, I was reminded that millennials are those who were in the 18 to 34 age range in 2015, and that they have eclipsed the 74.9 million baby boomers, ages 51 through 69, in 2015, to become the largest demographic in our nation. I was also reminded that millennials stand out as least likely to value church attendance, with only two in 10 believing it's important and 35% actually being anti-church. The article explored the stated reasons and noted how some churches are obsessed with changing in the hopes of reaching the millennials. However, it also noted it's easier to develop a new program than to minister grace to a sinner. And that is exactly what a millennial is. A sinner in need of the reconciling love of Jesus Christ, just like the rest of us. There is no mystery here. So there is no need to radically alter the mission of the church. The author further noted... The sobering truth is that millennials' religious perceptions and dispositions did not emerge out of nothing, but were in fact begotten by their spiritual parents. It was the baby boomers who crafted church in their own image, making it more casual, more seeker-friendly, more entertaining. Millennials watched their precursors take down the cross to make room for the screen. They saw them eliminate the liturgy, something that's never been a part of our heritage, to increase praise time. They heard them talk about how important it was for God to make them feel better about themselves rather than about sin and the need for repentance. And now the shoe is on the other foot. He then concludes... There is no need to twist ourselves 
into knots, trying to divine what millennials want because we already know what they need. We don't have to invent new programs, either fashionably modern or ancient, or rebrand or reimagine anything. Let us not waste time and energy on new measures or techniques. The one thing needed is a clear and robust ministry of the gospel. In churches where worship is offered in its purity and integrity, where discipleship is conducted with clarity and affection, where fellowship is enjoyed with hospitality and regularity, and where stewardship is practiced sacrificially and faithfully, there will the mission of the church be attractive and fruitful, not just to millennials, but to people of all ages. If Chatham Christian Church would be successful in God's eyes, we'll follow Paul's instruction to Timothy. We will be a modeled, Bible-centered, spirit-directed, progressing persevering ministry. I pray we'll never lose sight of that nor settle for anything less.